Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs. And I'm Alan Murabayashi. Alan, happy National Selfie Day. Oh, what? <laughs> Selfie Day? Every day's a day. Yesterday yeah, was yeah. Father's Day, as, as of this mm-hmm. taping. It was also Queen Amon Day, which is a type of pastry. And it was also International Surfing Day. Every day's a day. Wow. But happy That's Selfie a- Day to you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I feel I feel that this one um, is relevant to the show in that, you know, I take a lot of selfies. And so, yeah, but apparently I, I found out about the day because Paris Hilton tweeted um, about how she is having a great national selfie day and that she invented the selfie with her and Britney Spears, <laughs> which I'm not sure is true. <laughs> well, you know, uh, to me, we can parse the semantics a little bit, but to me, a selfie is when you're holding the camera yourself. It's not reflected in the mirror. So there could be some truth in terms of the timing of when selfie became selfies became popular with phone cameras. Um, mm. But eh, whether she invented, maybe she popularized it. I don't know that she invented it. Yeah, yeah. Good point. This would be a good research project. <laughs> But, you know, happy selfie day to Paris Hilton and everyone loves Britney again. So happy selfie day to Britney Spears. Maybe she'll post a selfie as well. (laughs) Yes, I hope so. We came across a great piece on NPR. Uh, The title is The 400-Year Project Looks at Native American Identity Through the Native Lens. And this is a new collective of uh, North American-based Native Americans and quoting from the article, the, the reason that this collective has come into existence, quote, correcting those myths and looking at the evolution of Native American identity over the last 400 years is the mission of the 400 Years Project. A pictorial collection of Native American life, it includes original photo essays, text essays, and a digital library of Native photographers from the mid-1800s to the present. It's a really cool website. You know, it's not just a database like indigenous photograph is it's it's this collection of content that extends back you know 150 years i really enjoyed looking at it yeah i love this like combination of photo essays um there's text on there and then there's also just a whole library of resources of different photographers i really feel like the the idea of the photo collective has just really morphed and grown in the digital age. And it's projects like these that are being publicized that are getting different photographers' names out there. And I just, I love it for that. Brian Adams, who's one of the founders of the 400-Year Project, is also a founder of Indigenous Photograph, which used to be called Native, Native Photograph. Um, that database, Indigenous Photograph, is a database of indigenous people around the world. So not just restricted to North America. So there is a difference of approach in terms of one being a database of all indigenous populations and the other being more of a collective and a collection of photos and, and essays. I looked at their Instagram and over the weekend, there was some lovely archival film images from 1982 to 1992 by a photographer named Jacob Peterson, who was an Inuk member from Greenland. And mm. there's just lovely black and white photos. And, and to me, it was just great to see depictions of family life uh, in an array of homes, geographies, and cultures. So if nothing else, I think the historical uh, images that are, that are being presented alongside of some of the contemporary photo essays, it's a really, really neat combination of content. 
Uh, so look for that link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Alan, you know, on our very first episode, way back in the day, um, we covered facial recognition at length, and we've periodically revisited it because, I mean, it really does sit at the intersection of photography and technology. Um, and a number of states, about almost 24, which is almost half, if I'm doing my math <laughs> right, um, are, are using a product called FaceMatch from ID.me, which uses facial recognition to verify individuals for unemployment benefits. And this product operates at a 99.9 efficacy rate, um, which means that one in a thousand people would be incorrectly identified. And this apparently is holding up people's unemployment benefits um, and that is infuriating. So there's an article in The Verge, and actually a number of news outlets over the weekend picked this up, that facial recognition is failing uh, to identify people properly, and therefore people aren't getting their unemployment benefits. It, you know, most of the articles were, were written from the, the shock perspective, like, oh my God, this technology is, is terrible. Um, but I did, I did think that the number, the, the threshold is very interesting. Uh, so I researched how many people this would be affecting. According to Pew Research, uh, there was an article that the COVID-19 outbreak and the economic downturn it engendered swelled the ranks of unemployed Americans by more than 14 million people from 6.2 million in February of 2000 to 20.5 million in May of 2020. Mm. So if you assume that all 50 states were using this product, which isn't true because it's only 24 – but if all 50 states were using this product with a 99.9% efficacy rate, that would be 20,000 people who are misidentified for their unemployment benefits. And the question Which, that I had in my mind was, mm -hmm. what threshold of in inaccuracy are we willing to accept as a society, knowing that we need a way, obviously, to verify who's receiving the benefits, knowing that fraud is a problem, a real and expensive problem for society, but also knowing that when people don't get their employment checks, they're literally starving. Right. So it, it, that's a tough, it's a tough one. I love the convenience of facial recognition in, you know, my Google photos where it groups all my friends together automatically and <laughs> I don't have to identify them. But when I see stories like this, I, it really gives me pause. Yeah, I mean, 20,000 people is not insignificant. Um, and let's say that those people are not fraudulent, uh, then they need their money. So it's, it's upsetting. It's always just a few people, fraudsters that are ruining it for everyone else. Right, right. <laughs> we came across an article in Mother Jones uh, earlier this month. The name of the article is called How the George Floyd Uprising Was Framed for White Eyes. It's a piece written by Remenda Cyrus and extensively quotes the author Martin Berger and Michael Shaw, who publishes Reading the Pictures website, one of our, our uh, often quoted uh, and friends of the show. Um, Cyrus starts the piece by referencing Bill Hudson's famous civil rights photo of a black teen teenager being attacked by a police dog. And Berger contends in his book, Seeing Through Race, a Reinterpretation of Civil Rights Photography, that when this image came out, the interpretation of the masses was of the frail Negro echoed in the media, um, and that this perception was really wrong because when you look at the photo of this teenager, Wal Walter Gadsden, he was actually kneeing the police dog as it was attacking him and also grasping the cop's arm, just trying to push him off a little bit. 
Cyrus's thesis is that despite a much more widespread awareness of civil rights issues during last year's George Floyd protests, that the media portrayals still rely on old tropes. And she examined A1 images of a number of major newspapers to kind of dig into her analysis. The first example that she referenced is of a black man kneeling with his fists raised. Berger, the author, says that black audiences tend to view this as powerful, while other audiences might see this as compliance with the state. And I quote, the viewer is invited, this is Cyrus writing, the viewer is invited to appreciate the man's ironclad will, his brave forbearance. The viewer is not implored to consider the desperation and anger it might have taken to put himself in that position in the first place. And when I read that piece of it, it gave me a little bit of pause because I didn't agree with that sentiment completely. I think I think there's a point uh, that Cyrus has there, but I would push back on some of the interpretation. The photo is by Carlos uh, Barria uh, of Reuters. Uh, you will find that the, the link to this story on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. And the first thing that I'll say is that in this era of social media, protesters are far more savvy than they were in the 1960s, obviously. And they know that an iconic image can go viral. And I'm thinking specifically of that wonderful photo by Jonathan Bachman of the nurse Aisha Evans in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, back in 2016, surrounded by SWAT police um, and how mm, viral yeah. that image went and how, how impactful it was in illustrating yeah. the militarization of the police and how normal civilians are going out there trying to protest police violence. So, you know, I see this guy kneeling and I'm not thinking he's compliant or I'm not thinking he's justifying. I'm thinking like this guy's media savvy. Um, mm. I think that given the general increase of awareness of police brutality, you know, to my last point, m more than just black viewers see this as a defiant pose. I think almost anyone in the United States who's been watching the news in the, in the past year sees this as like daring the cops almost to move towards a very violent overreach because the guy's not threatening at all. He's on his knees with his hands raised. And we've seen instances where cops just shoot people who are doing mm -hmm. the exact same thing for no reason. I do agree with Cyrus that the viewer is not implored to consider the desperation and anger that drove this guy to his knees in protest. But a major role of A1 photos or magazine covers is to sell copies so we have to just remember remember that. And in my opinion, the goal of A1 coverage is to generate a visceral rea reaction, not to have this like very nuanced, contemplative thought about what this image means, you know, from a historical and societal implication. That was a lot of that was a lot of thoughts, Sarah. <laughs> what did you think of the article? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. I definitely that image is. That ex using that example, she uses it as the martyr example, um, and it is an interesting one since you you can't see the subject's face. So that I, whole idea of not seeing the desperation or anger, you know, which is an emotion that is very complex and that um, you would maybe be able to tell from a facial expression or a look in the eyes. We just we don't see that because the photo is taken. Um, his back is to the camera. Right. Um, so there's that. I, I thought it was good to see, you know, this kind of analysis on a somewhat more mainstream media news site. You know, I mean, uh, 
having somebody quoted from reading the pictures on Mother Jones um, is very cool. I mean, I think this basically makes a case for a for having more diverse newsrooms, which is not something that Cyrus like explicitly says um, or is necessarily even arguing for. But this whole idea of that the protests were framed, quote, for white eyes. I mean, I would none, none of the photographers featured in this article um, were black. Um, they weren't all white, but they none of them were black. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's almost like it was framed and by white eyes, perhaps. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I would love to hear these experts' opinions um, on photos from 2020 that, you know, really had some social traction that everyone was sharing on social rather than on A1. Right. Because going back to your point, you know, we know that A1 is meant to sell copies of papers. So it's a, it's a different a different need set being being met with the A1 images. I, I also have to imagine that there's there's a wide generational divide between who's reading physical newspapers anymore. I yeah. I haven't picked up a physical newspaper in years because I have digital subscriptions to a number of newspapers and I can't imagine that, you know, your average 20 something is looking at A1s and thinking about the representation of of people right. on A1, you know. So I it was a it was a compelling analysis, but I think that it was only relevant to a very small group of of people. It might have been a little bit too insider baseball um, to mm. be re- relevant to the masses. Um, but to your point, I'm, I'm glad that the conversation is 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 occurring, and I think that you know, from an academic standpoint, we will be talking about how images during this period affected society at at large. Uh, a mm-hmm. quote that Martin Berger had in the piece, which is relevant to the portrayal of photography uh, of these events, he says, quote, many millions of liberal whites have no problem seeing the problem of race as one of violent police. That allows them to distance themselves from racism since they can't imagine themselves perpetrating white on black violence. White outrage at police conduct downplays their complicity in a racialized system that benefits whites. And I have seen other analysis that falls mm. along these lines. It's like, oh, we went out and marched, and here's this photo, and it's really a problem of uh, uh, police violence. It's not my passive-aggressive you know, nature as suburban white family not wanting the black family living next door to me, right? Which is the larger mm. social mm. proof of racism, I think. Yeah, and Cyrus does give very pointed examples of, you know, these photographs, um, the good versus the evil, the evil being the police, the good being the protesters. Right. right. It's, it's a, yeah. it's a good piece. I mean, it's worth reading. Uh, uh, and we'll have that link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. On June 11th, the winners of the Pulitzer Prizes 2021 were announced. Darnella Frazier, the teen who filmed George Floyd's murder, um, was awarded a Pulitzer citation. Um, She was 17 at the time of the filming, and she has really conducted almost no interviews um, between then and now. But she has posted publicly on Facebook describing the anxiety and the pain that she's experienced since witnessing the murder um, of George Floyd. And of course, there was her famous testimony at the Chauvin trial. Um, Derek Chauvin is the cop who murdered George Floyd. She said during that trial, quote, it's been nights I stayed up apologizing and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. End quote. I think it's great that she was awarded this citation and really shows the public um, 
the importance of civilian journalism and that we all need to be vigilant and watching out for one another. The citation said uh, that they're rewarding it for, quote, courageously reporting the murder of George Floyd, a video that spurred protests against police brutality around the world, highlighting the crucial role of citizens in uh, journalists' quests for truth and justice. And one of the jurors, Pulitzer jurors, who's a four-time winner himself, Roy Peter Clark, acknowledged the material and the creator fall outside the traditional boundaries of the prize, but that her video has a, quote, social and ethical purpose, one that aligns with journalistic values. It's crazy mm. to think that a 17-year-old cell phone footage spurred all of the protests last year. Yeah, There's no doubt in my mind that without that, we wouldn't be having as robust a conversation about racism that we've had in the past 12 months. And those protests would not have existed, you know, literally all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. So when I think of like, was she deserving? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely deserving. And, you know, I think it's a testament to her. I think a lot of people might have parlayed this into, you know, a book and a press tour and, you know, especially like teens who see social influencers making money off of, you know, doing nothing. And she did something incredible. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a real testament to her that, that she's remained so introspective about that event. And when I read that, uh, testimony, God, it just broke my heart mm-hmm. that she's thinking as a 17 year old, she was supposed to do more. There were three cops on George Floyd. Right. You know, it's just like right. crazy. It breaks my heart a little bit, right. but I'm so glad that she, uh, received that citation. We spoke a number of times about uh, the the model Emily Ratajkowski. Uh, she was the subject of a sexual assault um, when she was a young model. She has had her image appropriated by Richard Prince, um, and we announced several weeks ago that she was selling an NFT of herself standing in front of the Richard Prince image, and that <laughs> image is now sold for a hundred seventy five thousand dollars. Via Christie's auction house. Crazy. The title of the image is (laughs) Buying Myself Back, a Model for Redistribution. I think some people have misgivings about the way that everything has gone down and the way that models, uh, you know, make their living. But I got to give her props. I mean, good for her. Yeah. I think my favorite part of this uh, this little weird saga of of her, like, appropriate, her being appropriated, her image being appropriated her reselling it as an NFT, um, yada, 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 is that the photo of her that Richard Prince appropriated was taken by the photographer Walter Yos, who, like you said, you would not be surprised if he owned the copyright to that photo of her taken for Sports <laughs> Illustrated. I don't even know if I'm explaining it right. It's, yeah. it's a complex so, picture. There was a, a piece on The Verge called How Many Layers of Copyright Infringement Are in Emily Ratajkowski's New NFT? Which was, <laughs> it was a terribly written article, you know, just like speculation <laughs> with no modicum of research whatsoever. Uh, so I will say that Walter Yost, longtime Sports Illustrated photographer and has photographed all of the swimsuit issues except for I think the last one. Um, and he always had a deal with Sports Illustrated where he retained his copyright. Uh, so sure. again, you know, not knowing the details, I wouldn't be surprised if he owned the copyright uh, for this particular image. We talked about Yost because a few weeks ago he sold 
some of his images of Michael Jordan and other great sports images as NFTs. And those images oh, sold right. for in excess of $50,000. Yes. So it's interesting to see how they're all getting in on the NFT game. There's a lot of questions surrounding, you know, copyright, but at least for now, you know, since this announcement came out, we haven't seen anything about Yo suing Radikowski, suing Prince, suing so-and-so, you know. I wonder if he will. I, I will be interested to watch that. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe, you know, they have a personal relationship because he, he worked with her and maybe he's like, yeah. life was tough on you. Don't, don't worry about it. I made my coin. I mean, who knows? Yeah, true, true. <laughs> Finally this week, some book talk. There's a bunch of new books that came out in the past week that, that I thought we should cover. The first is from an article in The New Yorker about Ben Brody's new book, Attention Service Member, the name of the article is called Relentless Absurdity in Army Photographers' Censored Images. Ben Brody was in the military. He photographed a lot of stuff as a photographer, military photographer. And the military at the time wouldn't release a lot of that, those images. And now he's put mm -hmm. it into a book. And, you know, like the images that we see out of Vietnam from back in the day where there were no real restrictions about what could be shown, um, that was such a raw view of war. And this book has that same sort of feeling to me. Mm. The next book is Sebastião Salgado's Amazonia. There was a nice write-up in The Guardian talking about how he almost lost an eye and like hurt his knee really badly in search of oh all of God. these populations on, on the Amazon. It, I mean, the article is incredible and the images are just jaw-dropping. Salgado, you got to protect those eyes. <laughs> Number one, get them insured. <laughs> what did you think of those images? There was one of like a rain, a rain cell that I was like, wow. It looked like oh, it was my. literally raining cats and dogs like 100 meters from him. <laughs> and then it just stopped and it was, you know, sun, sunshine. Right. It's, it's absolutely stunning. And I mean, his black and whites are just so rich with texture yeah. and light and so this, this storm cloud just over this field is just stunning. You know, sometimes when I see his work, I'm like, well, it's getting a little too crispy from a post-processing standpoint. It doesn't quite feel like photojournalism or documentary photography. And then mm. when I look at the entire body of work, I'm like, I'm crazy. This is great <laughs> photography. You know, we, we've talked a number of times about the gold mine images that he had also yeah. from Brazil and how stunning yeah. those images were. Guy's a master. He Guy really, he really, master. really is. I feel like I feel you got to see them off screen yeah. too to really judge the crunchiness. You know, we don't know if that's the website processing the photo. I've <laughs> resisted buying photo books for the last couple of years because I have a tendency of you know looking at it once and then it sits on the bookshelf. Mm. I might, mm. I might get this book. That's yeah, really great. it's a beauty. Yeah. The last one is Todd Bigelow's The Freelancer Photographer's Guide to Success: Business Essentials. Todd is a friend of Photo Shelter, has done some uh, webinars with us. He's, a, he's an educator. He's a photographer who's been railing against bad business practices for years. This is one I bought the Kindle edition. Uh, you know, as much as I love these, these books, they're, they're very large. I mean, he wrote a lot yeah. for this thing. And I love the searchability of, of being on the Kindle. So I got the electronic edition. I'm, I, I just started it. I'm really looking forward to digging it, into it some more. There's so many freelance photographers out there. This, I mean, you just got to own this book. Dang, yes. I definitely want to check this out and make it a tax write-off. Oh, there you go. There you, you're probably going to learn about that in his book. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so three great books, Ben Brody, 
Sebastian Salgado and Todd Bigelow. Check them out. We'll have links to them on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. While you're here, you might as well smash that subscribe button. Leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at PhotoShelter. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.